Welcome to the Strength Connection Podcast, a show to share stories, insights, and experiences in strength physically, mentally, and spiritually. I'm Michael Krukowski, host of the Strength Connection, and I'm so grateful that you can join me today. So in these episodes, I connect with some of the most inspiring and successful individuals to chop it up and learn from true life experiences that have helped them become who they are, the strongest versions of themselves. One of the greatest ways I've always learned the most important lessons is through stories. We all have them, and they make us who we are. So let's dive in. Here we go. Today, I'm joined by Rafe Kelly, a pioneer in the worlds of parkour and natural movement and the founder of Evolve Move Play. So after an upbringing in the worlds of martial arts and gymnastics, Rafe found a new calling in the world of parkour, starting the first West Coast gym centered around this training, which eventually led to him connecting deeper with the natural world and created Evolve Move Play. It's a program that is the true definition of strength connection. So Rafe is one of the brightest minds in movement, recently being guests on Jordan Peterson's and John Verveke's shows, two of the most influential podcasts on the planet. And it was a true honor to share the mic with him. So with that, we'll get right to it. But before we do, please show the support for the show. Make sure you subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you're listening and also on our YouTube channel, The Strength Connection. Your support means everything to me and I sincerely appreciate you. Thanks so much. Let's get on with the show. All right, let's have some fun. Rafe Kelly, it's an honor to meet you. Thanks so much for taking the time, man. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Sounds like you guys had a pretty playful 4th of July we did, <laughs> before we were recording this. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, they basically um, we live on a quiet cul-de-sac with a bunch of other young families, and one of the families hosted a party. And so from, I don't know, 1 o'clock to 7, almost 8, <laughs> the kids were just running around like, you know, crazy having water balloon fights yeah. and uh, water gun fights and just getting totally soaked, um, which was great. And then, uh, oh, they were riding their bikes around the cul-de-sac. And mm-hmm. then, um, then, uh, then afterwards we watched, we finished the movie Footloose, which we just started. And uh, the original one or the newer the original one? one yeah. Okay. There you go. <laughs> None of this newfangled stuff. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and so we had this little, grassy sword in our front yard and then uh this maple tree that the kids this japanese maple tree the kids love to parkour and so they made me take them out and put on the footloose soundtrack and they had this crazy dance party where uh my um my son who's just about to turn nine did a backflip in the middle of his dance for the first time uh yeah, he's he's been working on backflips. I mean, he started, learned a backflip on the trampoline mm-hmm. when he was five, I think, or six, um, when he was six. And then he started working on standing backflips on the ground, mm-hmm. um, probably, I think, back in March, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> but with mats and in a gym. Yeah. And uh, so just yeah, decided just, to go for it. Just, just decided just to go for it. He's just in the, in the zone. And yeah, he lands on his hands and his knees, but pops back up and does it again and um i was just like yeah that was really cool so power of play yeah. and then and then they were incorporating all these tree routes swinging and vaulting and and uh doing brachiations uh in between the trees and then popping down and then doing break dancing moves <laughs> it was pretty epic it was uh yeah, yeah so well, that, that, uh, well that's definitely that. a light yeah that's definitely a light bulb moment when you hit something yeah. you've been working on for a while as a kid mm-hmm. specifically something with no kind of extra padding or anything like that just all right i'm feeling it yeah that's interesting like I've seen that in my son. Like I think when he learned his Kong vault, um, he also learned it while dancing. So there, you know, I was trying to teach it to him, but he he was kind of struggling to understand, 
you know, how to keep his legs in between his arms. And, um, and he was getting in his head about it and he was upset about not getting it right. And then like, we just put on music and he had a dance party and I had this little like, um, bench in the middle of the mm-hmm. floor. Like a, it was a weight bench. It's like a, you know, for bench pressing, okay. but, uh, you know, but just the bench, not the, not the uprights. And, um, and I've used that to teach them vaulting skills. And so we just had that. And then he was dancing through the room and he would just like vault every once in a while when it made sense in the middle of his dance. And then all of a sudden he just got it. So there's something wow. really interesting of the power of like that deep play state um, and, and music to, to sort of yeah. unlock uh, skills uh, yeah. at least for, for him in particular. That's interesting. Like, what is it? It's like, is it just a deep sense of flow state at the moment? And that just kind of maybe opens up a little different inhibition yeah. or just kind of it's, I wouldn't say it's like taking away the fear, but it's almost just like, you're just such in the, you're in your body so much at that time that you probably have almost like a little bit more of like an invincible feel like, all right, I'm going to try something. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is precisely it. I think, you know, basically you're kind of just a very different creature when you have the right neurochemicals flowing through you, right? Mm-hmm. You, you kind of become invincible to some degree. I mean, not invincible, but you become much more robust and much more reactive and much more attuned to the motor control parameters. Mm-hmm. Um, when, you know, you're running enough norepinephrine and dopamine and, you know, uh, internal cannabinoids and internal opioid yeah. systems, all that stuff, like, you get the dial it just right. And, uh, you know, you'll see people just uh, occupy a very different experience of their body than yeah. they do otherwise. And dance uh, and music have really in- interesting power to unlock things like that, to to take people yeah. into this really ecstatic flow state. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's that it's that different level of play. It's so interesting. You said that it's like, we can learn so much from the kids in our lives, right? It it seems like Mm -hmm. as adults, we kind of lose that, that sense a little bit and just kind of, you know, it's interesting, like being, uh, you know, in preparing for this, like yesterday, I just went out for, you know, a nice hike after the Mm -hmm. afternoon and just being out in nature. I was thinking about our conversation and following a lot of the work that you've done with parkour since parkour visions, uh, going into evolve move play And Mm -hmm. I walk, I get outside, you know, quite a bit. I love training outside, but it was also like just going through, uh, like a hike, just start naturally, like jumping from one rock to another and kind of just like using your hands. I left there and just your entire mood, my entire mood for the rest of the day, just changed. I was such in a calm state, um, such a, like just a, a different type of just mindset that you get and a body feels good too, but it is, it's something about just using your body in all different ways. And I think that's where I've seen so much, like in the fitness industry, we get so much into like the structure of everything. When I think one of the things we've lost a little bit is just that essence of just play, just Mm -hmm. moving around with our bodies, not in a structured way as much, but in a little bit more of that creative way. Yeah, play has this incredible power to drive progress. And um, this is, I think, my interest in play, certainly catalyzed by discovering parkour and starting to train parkour, because I came from gymnastics, right? I was a gymnastics teacher. I was not um, a highly accomplished gymnast myself. I didn't start gymnastics until I was 15, but I had um, a way with kids. Did you do anything before then? Like martial like arts, martial arts. So, okay. so I, I had a extended martial arts background as a child and I played soccer 
Um, but, and I actually even started lifting weights when I was 12, mm-hmm. but just bodybuilding circuits and very, uh, um, what's the word? Uh, like the splits. Yeah. Just like walking around and doing, you know, bicep curls on a machine. Yeah. But I just didn't care. Like I, I, I had a mentor who took me there, and I would, I would do the things with him. But I had zero, like, real motivational drive at that point. I wasn't like in there with intense concentration on my mind muscle, you know, and trying sure. to like rack the weights up higher every time. I was just kind of like goofing off on these machines. But oh. yeah, I, I'd done a few things. But yeah, so at fifteen, I started uh, training gymnastics. The time I was already six foot one and I weighed about 150 pounds and I'm currently, you know, two, there's some about 215 right now. Okay. So lean. So Mm -hmm. so I'm a big man. Um, and my body structure was, you know, I I weighed two of five when I graduated high school. So between 15 and, and, you know, 18, my body filled out a lot. Yeah. So, so at, at, um, at 15, you know, I was really excited about gymnastics. That was right after the 1996 Olympics. Um, so that got me excited. My uh, my little sister was in gymnastics, so we started training there. And um, my older brother got into it. My older brother is 5'7", you know, and he was like 130 pounds. That's a perfect and, gymnastics body yeah, right there. <laughs> he was, you know, he's fully developed. He's 19 at the time. He's yeah. been doing jiu-jitsu for a couple of years, mm-hmm. like super ripped and lean and powerful and uh, he was doing double backflips on the trampoline like six weeks later and standing backflips and muscle ups on rings and took me years to get all that stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, but, but in any event, I liked it and I, I st- had started working with kids independently, like doing boys and girls club type stuff. And so I got hired as a gymnastics coach. Okay. Um, so I, I got really into it and I actually quit university where I was uh, studying anthropology because I found that I just really loved coaching. Coaching was really, really rewarding to me. And I saw that as my path forward in the world. And um, so I'd absorbed a lot of sort of pedagogy from gymnastics by the time that I came over into parkour. Um, And what's fascinating about parkour is, you know, in a lot of ways, it's quite similar to gymnastics. Like, you know, it's basically moving your body around on obstacles. And, you know, you can think of the, the... the balance beam and the vault bar, the vault, the yeah. vault, you know, the rings, the parallel mm-hmm. bars, the uneven bars, the uh, the high bar. They're all just like species of of obstacles. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then you know the acrobatic portion of parkour is obviously, you know, there's a lot of common ground. Like backflips, yeah. a backflip, front flips, a front flip, front handsprings, front handspring, mm-hmm. you know, double back double front right mm-hmm. there there there's a lot of common language mm-hmm. i was also interested in track and field so i i didn't ever really compete in track and field but i paid attention to it and i you know i i read up on track stuff and so so i kind of had a sense of how parkour athletes compared to these other two sports that are very that share a lot of common ground mm-hmm. and what i noticed over time was that you know, we were clearly just not nearly on the same level as park uh, gymnastics when you know when I started in two thousand five, and we were all just super amateurish, right? But in regards to skill level, or in regards to skill level, okay. yeah. But by the time we had built the gym, and you know, around the time that I was exiting the gym, like some of the best parkour athletes were now really starting to push skills that were uh, comparable to the best 
best gymnasts. So one of the athletes that I trained, his name's Nate Weston. He was one of the first one or two guys to do a triple backflip off of a bar outside. Wow. So a triple backflip, I believe, is rated D in the uh in the men's uh code of points in in gymnastics, which is the second highest rated skill. Okay. But there's almost no athletes who compete E level dismounts in um in gymnastics. So this is basically like comparable to the highest level of gymnastics. Um now Nate was a very good gymnast at one point. He he was a he was like, you know, a level nine, which is a very high level mm-hmm. gymnast for a for a for an eleven year old or twelve year old at the time. I can't remember how old he was, but so he did have some gymnastics background. But uh, I had other athletes who I who I knew, like this kid Jared Nahulu, who um, just came completely from parkour. And a, a couple of years later, I think around two thousand sixteen, I think he was the first person I knew of to do a double twisting double back flip. Um, off of a bar and that was uh you know this is not a gymnastics bar it's it's a hard metal bar right right on a, in a, in a bar setup that's not set up just like a high bar yeah and um and he did it on t- and landed on three quarter inch rubber matting over concrete so i mean this is that's a d skill mm-hmm. being competed in parkour and circumstances that are much more challenging than yeah, much than different in, environment. Yeah. Then, then you're seeing in gymnastics. Um, so, so you see that, you know, now the, the best acrobatic specialists in parkour, they can flip as many times in the air. They can spin as many times in the air broadly as gymnasts can, or at least mm-hmm. very comparable, you know, 90%. Mm-hmm. Um, which is pretty astonishing. And at the same time, if you look at like pure jumping power, um, interestingly, parkour athletes are not particularly fast, like as far as uh, running speed, mm-hmm. I think mostly because we just never approach max velocity in our training. You rarely do run-ups that are more than like seven steps. Okay. So, you know, we're running from maybe at most 10 yards away. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas like, a uh, a world-class long jumper is running from 60 yards, um, 60 meters. And so I don't think there's a lot of parkour athletes who are, who are pushing down into like, you know, sub 11 second, hundred meter times, even sub 12 mm-hmm. second, hundred meter times. Um, so what's the, probably, what's the differentiation then? Like with the top at, like, what's the, is there a specific skill that, it seems like parkour takes more than like somebody said, yeah. like, it's not like ultimately fast, but is it more like balance, like dexterity? Yeah. I mean, it's coordination. It's, it's a lot of different things, right? Upper body pulling power is really important in parkour. Um, you know, parkour athletes often can go over and, and do really crazy dinos uh, if they, you know, have enough, enough of a grip in, yeah. in, in rock climbing. So like uh, uh, one of my, uh, contacts. Toby Seeger has, is now, uh, he's kind of transferred from the parkour community to now he's also dabbling quite a bit in rock climbing. So he's in both, mm-hmm. but I think he's climbing eight B in the rock climbing world, which is like, that's professional level. That's high professional level. Yeah. Um, and, uh, he, he's setting world records in, um, in dinos. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, so there's a lot of like upper body, pulling power is very important in parkour and jumping power. So that's what I was going to say is I think for a standing jump, 
like for a standing broad jump ability, I think that the best parkour athletes now are actually, or like, uh, not even the best parkour athletes, but if you compare like a comparably experienced group of parkour athletes to track and field or gymnastics athletes, mm-hmm. the parkour athletes have more standing jumping ability. Okay. Um, and I think that if you're looking at like a, a three-step run-up, you'd see a fairly comparable skill in horizontal jumping ability between mm-hmm. that it's as you get past three steps four steps five steps six steps that um the track athletes are just much better able to coordinate first of all they're just faster they have way more reserves of speed um but they're also but they're also able to handle this speed going into right. a jump like it's a huge technical problem to to go 20 miles an hour and and jump off the ground right yeah like a really specific set of adaptations but if we look at if we you know if we isolate jumping power down and separate it from speed and speed management i think that you're seeing now that the best parkour athletes are comparable to if not advanced beyond the level of of track and field athletes Mm. yeah so that's that's so interesting because the ones that i've seen that like you see the top guys like it's it's almost it's it's a very awe-inspiring thing to see, kind of similar with gymnastics. Like you see the top-level gymnasts, it's it feels different than you know seeing top-level NFL players. It's great, it's it's athletic, but it, to see them do those skills in gymnastics or parkour, you're almost like this quizzical look. And in parkour, it's always it's not as much like the the skill or the the stunt that they're doing, but the the ability to move directly into another stunt and another skill right afterwards and maintain that balance and to maintain that yeah exactly that connectability that's a beautiful word yeah so i mean there was a i'm not sure how much is true in the current code of points in gymnastics i don't pay nearly as much attention to gymnastics as i did uh in the past but uh, i think right around the 2000 olympics they did a really strong connection bonus thing because they wanted to see uh athletes putting together really complicated Mm -hmm. uh passes so it used to be you're just trying to get that you know you have um in a in a in a gymnastics routine you have so many skills that are counted right so you mm-hmm. can't you can't just spam the same skill over and over again and right, just like yeah. get more points for it right, right? so you're going to have say I, I don't remember what the actual number it is but let's just just arbitrarily say say 10 skills that are going to be counted so now you're going to try to get all those skills to be as high in the code of points as possible. So if there's a few enough skills, then what you you end up doing is sort of like building your tumbling and pass to achieve one really, really big skill. Um, so because of that, they then put in these connection bonuses. So you could rack up points by doing like four skills or three skills that are difficult and complex but not as difficult and complex as the highest skill. So instead of somebody doing round off back handspring, back handspring, triple backflip, you'd see people doing, you know, a round off backflip, one and a half twist, step out, right, uh, front twisting, triple twist, right? And now the connection right. bonus is higher. So in this, it's the same in parkour. There are athletes who who specialize in you know, basically the one big trick. So Dom Tomasi is uh, mm-hmm. probably the best in the world at just sort of doing some insanely huge thing, right? He'll right. do, especially front flips. He, you know, he, he's done, I think his biggest front flip down was like 27 feet that he went down. Um, You know, he's probably done 15 foot, you know, like gaps <clears throat> right, between right. things or more. Um, 
with a front flip. Big gainers, gainer precision, stuff like that. Uh, but he doesn't doesn't twist very much. You know, doesn't have remarkable mm-hmm. twisting ability. Doesn't really connect skills particularly. Whereas if you look at another athlete like uh, Travis Verkey, uh, uh, Verkey is extraordinary at putting together lines where he's connecting extremely complicated skills to extremely complicated mm, skills. Yeah. Um, so, so it's like home run hitters versus like you're consistently hitting doubles over and over again. Yeah. yeah something like that. Yeah. Um, but, but that ability to do that is, is, you know, definitely like it's extremely challenging to, to orient from doing a double corkscrew, which is right. a backflip off of one leg you know, that's slanted in the air. So your, your leg slot is almost horizontal. Um, I think technically for a corkscrew, the leg sling is supposed to be slightly above horizontal, but Mm -hmm. uh, that gets into, you know, weird areas of terminology and, and, and in parkour that, you know, your fitness audience is not going to care about at all or understand. (laughs) Um, But, uh, but, but anyways, yeah. So you do this double corkscrew and then land on the edge of something step out and then you know do a different flip um mm-hmm. it's it's uh yeah so that's yeah. that's the type of stuff ellis torhall is another guy you know mm-hmm. he's putting together these multi-flipping lines where he's you know maybe doing uh, a, a flip with a full twist or double flip catching a bar going into another mm-hmm. skill immediately um it's absolutely astonishing yeah, yeah for sure so for you, like you started in gymnastics at 15 and then really kind of caught the coaching bug. You really wanted to work with people and yeah. helping that. And then at 23, you found parkour. What was it about parkour that, that felt different or that you aligned with more in that? Cause you said there's, there's some similar skills of it, but was mm-hmm. it a different joy that you found in it or kind of a different fulfillment from doing yeah. that modality? I mean, I think I, I think I was attracted to the sense that like of being able to do these skills is somehow heroic, right? It's like this big mm. confrontation, at least with the the challenging yourself. Uh, I remember, you know, watching the 1996 Olympics and when Kerry Strug like sprained her ankle and got up and ran down the runway and landed and landed on one leg. Like that was very like aspirational for me, right? Oh yeah. Uh, knowing man, the whole I context. Thought, I thought about that in forever and now it just flashed right back into my head. Yeah. Yeah. It was quite the moment. Yeah. Um, you know, knowing the whole context, I'm not sure <laughs> that was yeah. th- that great of a moment, but for whatever reason that motivated me. And then in the same way, when I saw parkour and I saw David Bell, like jumping between buildings, it was, it was as if someone had sort of said like, Hey, you could, you could still be a, like a heroic knight out there, you know, taking on dragons. It's just like the dragons are in you trying to confront mm-hmm. this, 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 uh, this building, right. Gap. And, and there was a way in which I felt like parkour was just uh like it, it had everything that i liked about gymnastics but was more real it was like discovering the platonic form that gymnastics was the the shadow cast on the wall of oh okay yeah huh. and so i still feel like that i still feel like gymnastics is just a distorted version of parkour oh, uh-huh. okay do you think yeah. it's like the do you think it's maybe because of like that structure versus almost like creativity? It seems like parkour, there's a little bit more of a a creative yeah. flow to it where I mean, I'm sure there's there's a lot of structures you built, you know, an EMP, and I, I want to go over yeah. that in a little bit, but um it also seems like there's such this element of freeness to it where it's like you're going from one thing 
So now I'm sure gymnastics has some of that, but still you're kind of like, you have a very specific routine that you're doing. You're following like kind of step-by-step where it seems like your mind can open up a little bit more in something like parkour. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, this is kind of the point that I was trying to get to in in making the comparison that, that parkour athletes now are in many ways comparable to the best track and uh, gymnastics and athletes. And now you can see even in rock climbing, like this, this is, uh, the, the relative attainment of skill is, is very comparable, um, which is really astonishing because, uh, almost all the top parkour athletes in the world, uh, you know, now it's changing a little bit, but, you know, up until recently, most of these guys are self-taught. They don't have, right. you know, million dollar facilities that have, you know, the same type of support that, that. Mm-hmm that a, a gy- gymnast has they're not training the same many degree of hours right like it's very very few people to almost nobody who's ever trained 40 plus hours of parkour a week right but um but that's you know that's what it takes to be an elite gymnast so the fact that that, that these street rat kids are are basically achieving the same level mm-hmm. of skill is really astonishing and what i attribute it to is that Parkour is basically motivated by play. It's motivated by the desire to take on challenges. And once you kind of get it, right, once you understand what you're doing as a parkour athlete and get the feel for it, it's you're creating these very tight feedback loops where you get to choose challenges that, you know, your internal sense of what an appropriate challenge is, is what's guiding you. And there's innumerable sets of challenges that are available to you. And you can really tightly couple the level of challenge to your particular level of uh, or where you're at in your developmental cycle. And it's very much driven by the athlete. This is extremely high athlete autonomy mm-hmm. and agency. And, and it results in lots of experiences of the flow state. And I think this is what results in extremely accelerated motor learning. Um, and I think that gymnastics, because it's more of a routinized cookie cutter skill, everybody's learning the same thing at the same time, you know, you're um, highly technical. It actually inhibits a lot of the intrinsic drive towards towards sort of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, basically parkour is just a better example of constraint-led or ecological dynamics playing out in the development of human locomotion. It sounds very like, it's almost like just a natural evolution of learning. I mean, that's how we learn, right? As it is, it's like it is. you, you're a little bit, you know, you challenge a little bit ahead of you and then you learn mm-hmm. it and then you find your next challenge and then you find your next challenge. And it, it is, it's funny, as I mentioned this before we started recording, it seems like we understand that as, as kids or like mm-hmm. that kids need to do that in play. Yeah. in our culture i don't know how much it is anymore you know now it's like you know it's that's yeah. a debate a, a debate a lot from a lot of different people if kids need to play more and i understand that but i think even as adults it's like it seems like we get away from that like aspect of of learning a bit as well of like kind mm-hmm. of pushing just a little bit above and this just seems like it's such a beautiful natural evolution of almost a choose your own adventure sense of yeah. it within a dynamic structure yeah so um so I started getting into the play research and then my wife actually did her, her master's thesis in anthropology 
on parkour as a form of adult play. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so once you read the, the, the play research, you see that essentially most animals engage in both exploratory locomotor play and rough and tumble play. And then primates and bears and a few other things like to do like object oriented play where they'll just mess around with something raccoons. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously it's super important in human beings who call, go on to be tool users. So within the play research to talk about, you know, exploratory locomotor play, um, object oriented play and uh, rough and tumble play. And then, then with human beings, you have narrative play and pretend play and all that kind of stuff. But as far as just the physical ways in which we play, one of them is how can I move my body through the space? So I'm going to run, I'm going to jump, I'm going to climb, swim, I'm going to balance, I'm going to climb high things, right? And every kid does this, right? And essentially, this is all the parkour is. Parkour is just exploratory locomotor play. Mm-hmm. And gymnastics is basically exploratory locomotor or is gymnastics is locomotion, right? So it's, it's an expression of this and it's fun and, and intrinsically motivating to some degree as well, but it's highly um, arbitrary in the shapes and the ways that you want to move your body. And it's, uh, and it's very divorced from the world that we experience around us. So the, the shapes of a gymnastics apparatus, like a pommel horse, Mm-hmm. unless you actually ride horses right um, which that, that's where it comes from right the pommel horse developed as a as a way to drill skills that you use on actual horseback right i heard didn't didn't like i think it was like the comanches or something would do like almost pommel horse exercises mm-hmm. well, where yeah. they were like lots they of about going into bow and arrows you know back in like the the days in oklahoma yeah i mean lots of uh of Lots of horse riding cultures have developed systems of horse acrobatics, mm-hmm. right? They're, you know, basically just ways of, of cultivating skillfulness and comfort on top of a horse. So you can go to Cirque right now and see like Cavalier and watch them do, you know, circles and, mm-hmm. you know, all sorts of skills and, and hand balancing on there and standing on the, on the pommels and everything. Um, and that those were skills of cavalry, right? That's what it comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, so. You know, if you're, you can imagine if you're a soldier, you, you might need to climb a wall to, to, uh, to ingress into an enemy, uh, enemy area or something like that, um, or to escape something, to get away from something. So, like the rings and the bars, like those just developed as strengthening mechanisms for soldiers. That's what, that's where the, what they were originally. Mm-hmm. Gymnastics. Uh, comes from the Greek word gymnasia, which literally just refers to being naked because uh, the Greeks trained in the nude. And so you used to have these gymnasia, which were, you know, open air areas um, where young men in uh, most of the Greek city states and young men and women in Sparta would get together and run and jump and uh, practice martial arts and throw things, right? Throw the discus, throw the javelin. So that's that's where gymnasium gymnastics started, and then when the Greeks were sort of rediscovered and during the Renaissance um, and the Enlightenment, you know, people wanted to sort of return to some of the things that they did. So the the movement towards gymnastics comes out of that period of time. Mm-hmm. So early on, like in the in the, so you had tumbling, right? And you can go back and look at uh, you know tumbling would be somersaults, front handsprings. 
uh, flips on the ground. And if you look at like medieval physical culture, you see that uh, knights, right? Men at arms trained to, to be able to tumble in armor sometimes. Yeah. Right. So if you were a, a well-trained soldier, you know, a, a medieval knight, you could probably turn a handspring, probably turn a front flip. Right. Mm -hmm. That was part of the training. You were going to wrestle. You're going to do acrobatics. You're going to run. Yep. Um, and so that's where the stuff originates from. But uh, as it kind of got codified into this set of apparatus, mm -hmm. the, the, the reason that you train these skills became further and further removed from what they came from. Right. So take the vault, right? So if you're a competitive gymnast today, you're going to do something like a front handspring with two flips out of it, right? right? Or a uh, round off, uh, you know, basically round off onto the board and then flip a couple times or twist a couple times off the vault. Mm -hmm. This is pretty far removed from any kind of vault that you would use functionally. Right, right. Um, now, when I was learning to teach gymnastics, we still taught, we were just kind of still teaching to do like tuck vaults onto things, which is essentially a Kong vault. Um, it's the same as a Kong vault in, in mm -hmm. parkour, flanked vaults and pike vaults. And all these things have gone away because they're not particularly developmental for the, the skills that they actually use at the highest levels of gymnastics, but they, mm -hmm. what they are is actually functional. And so if you go back to the 1996 Olympics and you watch the compulsory rounds of the men's vault, you'll see that they competed something called a hecht vault which is a Kong vault, uh, what we would call a, a Kong vault in parkour, which is basically diving onto your hands and having your body pass behind your hands as you go mm -hmm. over the object. So in, in its functional application, your body's going to tuck up and come down on the other side. Uh, the hecht vault is a, a, a more advanced technical version of this where you actually have to keep your body straight. So you have to bounce off your hands hard enough that you can keep your body totally straight and fly mm -hmm. through the air and come down on the other side. Um, so they were competing this and they were judged in part for how far that they flew uh, past the vault. So it's actually very much like parkour, right? Okay. Yep. But going into the next code of points, uh, like the, the developmental manuals dropped all of those, those those things but they've been there since the beginning of gymnastics in this i think 17th century with mm -hmm. uh ludwig Jan and those guys so we you know what we do in parkour is actually a reflection of what gymnastics was at its origins mm. but gymnastics has become a extremely aesthetically driven you know the the competitive format has sort of lost its connection to what the purpose of it was gotcha. to develop okay. in an athlete. So it kind of, it seems like gymnastics, it started, as you said, like there's some intrinsic, you know, uh, motivation mm -hmm. behind that probably because you can see the carryover into how this is going to, yeah, uh, I mean, to maybe real world stuff. So I think gymnastics derives from tumbling traditions and mm -hmm. strength training traditions that, uh, that were clearly like related to relevant attributes for actual like soldiers, basically. Um, now, because it's soldiers and because this is also arising during the um, industrial revolution, you know, um, and, you know, 
I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure about this, but I suspect that uh, German gymnastics is probably related also to the rise of the Prussian state. And the Prussians, of course, are famous for developing this extremely systematic mechanized uh, approaches to troop training. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also where our modern education system comes from. So gymnastics is actually very deeply kind of built around uh, a, a mechanical, like factory kind of approach mm-hmm. to manufacturing human movement capacity. Sure. Yeah. Whereas wow. I, don't, I don't think that human beings, um, uh, human beings don't optimally develop, uh, develop that way. Right. It, human nature is, a. Uh, um, there's a really important idea in like thinking about problems, problem solving, right. Uh, the, the difference between a complicated problem and a complex problem. So a complicated problem is a problem that no matter how many moving pieces it has, it has a single derivable uh, solution. So it has an algorithmic solution. Complex problems don't have are, are what's called combinatorial explosive. So building a you know a rocket ship is very complicated, but it's basically you know once all paths lead to Rome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. you know you, you there's not a lot of degrees of freedom sure you just have to figure you have to do it right 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 very few tolerances um but playing chess is a complex problem because it's actually combinatorial explosive so if you look at a game of chess there's something like an average of uh 30 legal moves per turn and an average of 64 moves in a game which means that the average game contains 30 to the 64 potential pathways so that's a really big number yeah (laughs) To give people an idea of how big a number that is, it's around the same order of magnitude as the number of electrons in the known universe. Yeah. Yeah. A little complex. Yeah. So there's there's a problem that comes up in any number of things of of what's called combinatorial explosion. Mm -hmm. So you can't algorithmically solve how to win a chess game, right? The biggest, most powerful computer that we have can't come close to doing that. So what you do is you have heuristics, right? So one heuristic in um, in chess is control the center of the board, right? Or another heuristic might be get your queen out early. It's a bias for how you pay attention. And mm. basically anything about human movement is uh, a complex problem, not a complicated yes. problem. So the optimal way to think about it is more like a gardener less like an engineer that is that's such a an eloquent way of putting it i really haven't thought about it in that context before but you see so much specifically with fitness programs and health programs are so much on the algorithmic side like you follow this plan and in six weeks you do this yeah it's total myth yeah, where we're not we're not built to do that. We're not built to just step by step follow this, just like you're building a car and then eventually you get combustion and then you can go drive. Where we're very comp. I thought of that before. Like humans are complicated. Maybe we're more complex, complex. than we are complicated. Yeah, yeah that's a really complex. that's a really interesting distinction on that. Yeah. And kind of seeing that, you know, too. I've I've seen it in the world of of strength. You know, doing kettlebell training, where you know I've talked about it a lot on this podcast about 
the last few years of doing more of an intuitive approach to training, kind of having an idea of what you're going to do, but inside that idea, play with it. So yep. there's a bunch of different variations of what the workout might be during the day. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. it, it seems like it's so similar with the world of parkour and kind of with that um, comparison with gymnastics, where it's like, where now it seems like you're learning a very complicated skill over and over again, but you just got to figure out how to do it. Where in parkour, it's like, you can do it a bunch of different ways. You can go through the trees in a bunch of different spots and you kind of have to be in a different mindset, it seems in order to really embrace that. Yeah. You have to recognize uh, the problem of complexity, right? And that's, yeah, that, that. that's ultimately what we're doing. Um, so, you know, I, uh, I guess, so I came from gymnastics, right? And then I got into CrossFit in the early days of CrossFit, um, 2005, 2006. Uh, picked up Mark Ripito, started reading, you know. Starting uh, Strength. Starting Strength, yeah. yeah. Texas, uh, the the um, uh, practical, program, uh, practical Programming. Then I read, uh, you know, uh, Zatsiorski and, you know, uh, didn't make it through. Vergoshansky and Mel Sif, but I don't think okay. most people do. I tried. Uh, <laughs> well, shout out to him, my buddy Antonio. He translated all of Vergoshansky's work, so at go. least it's a little bit easier to go. <laughs> if I if I could ask you though, Rafe, like when because you were in Parkour Visions for a while, and mm-hmm. then uh, you kind of found of going into Evolve Move Play, which it seems like that was more of being outside, being more in the natural environment, was that really kind of the, the changeover of like, okay, now I'm going to transition from the gym and evolve the program into more of a, a different approach was kind of being outside and being more in the natural environment. Was that a major part of that? Yes. Um, yeah, there, there was a number of things that went into it, but, uh, before I started parkour, I was training in gymnastics and, um, on strength training and, you know, playing basketball. And then I would often go uh, alpine hiking on the weekends because um, I just liked being in alpine areas. So when I started training j- parkour, like there were during the summer, there was always parkour jams on the weekends. I was always meeting with people and we always met in the city. Mm-hmm. And I missed going out into the alpine areas. I wanted to just go be in nature. Um, so I, I th- started thinking within a year of training parkour about like, what would it be like to train parkour in nature? But I couldn't really imagine it, right? The spaces that I ran around through as a kid, they didn't seem to be to have lots of setups for cat leaps and, you know, Kong vaults and stuff that, that we did in parkour or under bars swings. And <clears throat> so I was, I was not sure how to integrate these things. Uh, at the same time I had, uh, I'd read a lot of ethnographic literature and I had read about the way that kids played all around the world. And there was this, this recognition of the power of play and of, you know, things that kids did in nature, you know, jumping off of trees, climbing trees, um, swinging around on liana vines. There was something that was attractive to me about that. I also read a lot of, um, of mythology, right. Um, Irish myth, Norse myth, Greek myth. And often the heroes in these myths actually have descriptions of them doing some really interesting parkour-like stuff. And it's usually um, combined with, you know, martial prowess with being able to have skills with the sword and wrestle and fight. Yes. So uh, there's a, I'll give you a couple scenes. One scene is from the Irish myth, uh, the pursuit of German Grania, 
So, Dermot is uh, the Irish myths are extremely exaggerated and very, very um, unrealistic. So they're uh, they're like Marvel movies. They're the Marvel movies of of myth. So like Dermot regularly kills armies of like fifty thousand people just himself. So More, yeah. <laughs> So, so Dermot is the is the hero of this myth. He's one of this this legendary band of Irish warriors called the Fianna, and basically Finn, who is the the chief of the Fianna, he's becoming an old man and he has lost his wife and he wants to remarry. So he wants to to remarry the daughter of the king, <clears throat> Grania, and she meets him and she's like, "No, I don't want to marry this old man." And so she casts a spell on Dermot and says, "You know, you're going to take me out because I, I love you instead." And Dermot is, you know, the is a is a loyal soldier of Finn, but he can't escape this this love ca- uh, gauge that she <clears throat> puts on him. So he steals away with her, and then Finn and everybody else starts sending all these armies after him. So there's this army of mercenaries that's looking for Finn, uh, for Dermot, but they don't know what he looks like. So Dermot dresses up in a disguise, and he meets up with them, and they're like, uh, you know have you seen this guy Dermot? And he's like, oh yeah, I saw him the other day. He's the most magnificent warrior you've ever seen. He did this feat I've never seen anyone do before. He uh, he rolled um, a barrel down a hill and stood on top of it all the way down the bottom of this rocky hill. And so then he gets up and he demonstrates the feat. And then everyone's like, well, I can do that. That's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. And so then 10,000 of their soldiers kill themselves trying to do this feat. <laughs> all right. And then that's one day and then the next day he comes back and meets them again and they're like oh well have you seen Dermot?" he's like yeah he did this thing where he ran up and stood on the point of a spear and then tens uh ten thousands of their soldiers impale themselves on the spear and then they're like oh and then uh uh you know the next day it's like <clears throat> he jumped up and landed in between two sword blades um and then you know they killed themselves doing that uh, but it's like precision jumping and running yeah. up blades and, you know, being able to balance. It's like, oh, it's all parkour, right? And then uh, Cuhul and the, the Irish um, hero was famous yeah. for this, the, sand, the feet of the salmon leap that would get him into castles and stuff like that. And then if you look at like the Norse sagas, they're much more realistic. But there's these amazing scenes where like uh, in Nall saga, Scarpedon, one of the warriors, jumps across a river and lands on ice and slides across the ice and while he's sliding uh chops the top of somebody's head off with his sword so there was this idea for me that parkour was like a hero's journey you're confronting i was gonna say it's like a hero's journey exactly but it and it's an expression of these fundamental heroic skills that human beings have wanted to cultivate forever but for me it wasn't complete without having the martial arts as well so very on early on in my parkour journey, I wanted to return to martial arts. <clears throat> so I was lucky enough to find one of the f- the first MMA gym in my town here, which was through uh, the Straight Blast Gym affiliate system. So that's uh, Matt Thornton's gym. That's um, uh, Conor McGregor's coach's coach. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I got a pretty good education in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Muay Thai through there. And I started wanting to kind of combine these elements. Mm-hmm. And around the same time, uh, I discovered the work of Georges Hebert, uh, who was the founder of Méthode Naturelle, and um, and he was talking about the idea that there were 10 fundamental human movements that we all should be competent in. Walking, running, jumping, climbing, um, moving on all fours, balancing, swimming, um, lifting, carrying, and self-defense. So the first seven of those skills are locomotive skills, mm-hmm. so explore back to the exploratory locomotor play idea, right? 
the next two lifting and throwing that would be your manipulative and then self-defense is interactive mm -hmm. um so so i wanted to kind of get back into and bring back the mito natural there was an idea that parkour in some sense may have also been inspired by mito natural that david bell who's the founder of parkour that his dad may have been trained in mito natural as a um as a child soldier in vietnam and uh not in the not in our vietnam war but in yeah. the previous franco-vietnamese war um so there was this curiosity about that from the early days for me and then the play part came in through my business partner tyson check introduced me well i was already interested in play i think um through the anthropology but i was exposed but i got a deeper dive into it through uh frank forensic who does something called the exuberant animal and he wrote this beautiful book called The Exuberant Animal about the importance of play and play as a source of a physical culture and how physical culture could reflect play. And so he put all those elements together and that was sort of where I was evolving. Um, and I met uh, uh, this guy who called himself Hibertiste on the parkour forums, who was also interested in the revival of of uh, Methode Naturale. And he was French and spoke French and could go find old Hebert books, right? So I went to France to train with him and to learn from him and to look at the books with him. Uh, and that's Erwin uh, Lacour, who went on to found MoveNet. It's, that's how I learned about all this when he connected yeah. with Gray Cook and FMS, who I was big with, and they yeah. did a lot of work, you know, with mm -hmm. MoveNet and understanding it. Yeah. So, so basically in 2008, 2009, I was, I was teaching parkour in 2008. I was teaching parkour here in Bellingham, but I was struggling to get, I was teaching Methode Naturale and parkour in Bellingham, and I, but I was struggling to get enough students. It was still, you know, so early in it and there's a smaller town. So then I got an offer to go teach um, in Seattle uh and there was a crossfit gym that wanted to have us teach parkour down there mm -hmm. and so we had started a nonprofit parkour organization and so i went down there so i went and kicked off that program and started teaching and you know everyone wanted me to kind of be the head coach of the parkour community because of my background in teaching gymnastics um and my passion for learning about all this stuff mm -hmm. but actually like I, I kicked that program off in september uh and then by the end of that at the end of that month i went to uh Corsica to film the video that became the work uh the workout the world forgot so it was Ty Tyson's friend Tim if I remember correctly <laughs> I'm not sure I remember his name even at this point I haven't talked to him a Tim Zane I think was his name mm -hmm. but Tyson hooked us up with Tim and Tim was the film guy and then that video was going to feature Erwin uh, and I training together mm -hmm. and for various reasons that that kind of fell off um so then I was I was still sort of like talking to Erwin about potentially collaborating with him through early 2009 and to, actually in early 2008 I forgot about that Erwin came out here and we taught like the first moon mm -hmm. seminar that I know of to the public um at the Sunray Shire where we host Return to the Source so that's kind of how I got into it and then you know uh Erwin and I didn't really see eye to eye he didn't really understand the play part a portion of it Mm. and i didn't really like the direction he was taking it once it went away from being a uh, a resurrection of method natural and became movement um it felt very commercialized and very mechanical mm -hmm. 
So off I went. But at that point, one of my critiques after the first event that we taught was I just didn't feel like either of us were that experienced at the core elements we were teaching. I wanted to get Mm -hmm. better at parkour. I wanted to get better at martial arts. I wanted to get better at all these things. And I felt like uh, we were both at kind of a novice level still across a lot of these areas. And that wasn't satisfying to me. So that's why I ended up uh, focusing from 2009 to 2013 on parkour, because I figured that if I could, you know, approach mastery in this one discipline, it would give me the insights that I needed to then fill out the rest of it. Um, that was actually an idea that I got from Scott Sonnen um, from RMAX. If you are, he's the guy who uh, popularized the club bell. Okay. Um, but he said something like, you know, if you want to become the master of every tool, start by mastering one tool. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. okay, well, parkour is going to be the one tool that I'm going to master. Yeah. <clears throat> And, uh, and so, yeah, so I did that for, for, I guess, four years and we were able to create, you know, uh, an organization that had, you know, pedagogical principles that were, uh, you know, I think widely viewed as the, you know, kind of the, the leading edge of pedagogy at that point throughout the world. We Mm -hmm. started some of the first grassroots parkour competitions. We brought in, um, we created the first, uh, teaching summits for parkour and yeah but then i i was always wanting to get back to nature i was always wanting to bring the martial arts into what we were doing i was always wanting to create a more complete holistic mm-hmm. movement and at a certain point uh my co-founder tyson was just not necessarily on the same page with me on that yeah. and then as we brought in more staff a lot of the staff were coming in with a very different understanding of parkour and it was you know uh, just wasn't a fit. So mm-hmm. I stepped away and started yeah. evolving with play. That's interesting. You know, it's like such an evolution of what mastery really is, right? It's like, I was always reference Robert Greene's version of mastery where you have like the apprenticeship phase, then eventually you need to go yeah. to that creative active phase where you go in and you dive deep into the information yeah. and gaining the knowledge so much and how you turn that eventually into wisdom is you need to go and creatively explore it. And what better way to go and explore it is to be out in nature and just actually like explore it from that. And there's only so much you can really do within four walls. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when you get out and you can just explore and really just be, you know, for, for lack of a cliche unified and like, you know, one with, you know, one with the world, you know, out there, it really is such a a different feeling, um, you know, of just being out in the, in the elements and being able to have, because you kind of, you equip yourself with this, with this information that to do, but then it's like, okay, this is, it's a new course. It's a new area. All right. Let's see what, what this area has to explore. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, when I moved to Seattle, I suffered really intense seasonal depression and I started working with a therapist and she was just talking through the things that really like gave me joy and what was going on with mm-hmm. me, we realized that like, I really was craving nature. Yeah. Like I just needed to spend time in nature. So we started trying to like figure out how we we're going to do that. And I actually at that time lived next to Green Lake Park in Seattle, which had these really beautiful cedar trees. So I would, I started just going down there to practice. And so I had been training predominantly in the parkour gym that we had created. And then to a lesser degree outside in a couple of our main urban spots, and when I started going there, I just discovered that I had this intense joy. And then I got really curious about why these trees were so good to move in. And then somebody tipped me off to there being like more trees like that that were even bigger and better at Volunteer Park. And when I showed up there, I remember it was like 
was surreal. It was like a mm. dream to walk through the park and see these trees and just be like, yeah, right. oh, wow. It's hard to, it's hard to describe, right? Yeah. It's like that feeling. So I think in 2010, I started training predominantly in the trees. And so I'd done, I'd gone really deeply into training in nature uh, here in Bellingham at Whatcom Falls and Clayton Beach, which are, you know, basically Whatcom Falls is a creek that has these huge sandstone boulders on it that are really good to move around on. And then um, uh, Clayton Beach is sandstone boulders as well, but on a beach where it's carved by the, by the, by the sound. Right. Yeah. And so at, between those two places, those were my main nature training places here in Whatcom County. And so then when I moved down there and I found the trees that just like took me into a totally different journey with understanding natural movement and mm-hmm. being able to really bring a lot of the parkour movement elements into relationship with, uh, with the natural world. And yeah. so then when, uh, when I left, I left parkour visions in, uh, in spring of uh 2013 and i you know over that summer i created the evolving play brand got mm-hmm. myself a website yeah. and by september i had my first uh gigs teaching yeah. um in uh, philadelphia and san francisco and so i got to go and like scout for and look for unique amazingly beautiful natural spaces in those cities take people out, explore, show them how they could use the spaces that we were in. Um, and then I got to, you know, start doing that, traveling all over the world. A uh, funny part of that story that I didn't mention uh, is, um, so in, I guess, I think in 2011, I met Ido Portal and started getting influenced by his ideas as well. So I was deep interest in evolutionary thinking, right? Evolution. And I came from parkour, but then I discovered Ido Portal, so that's move, right? And then deeply influenced by Frank Forensic, play, evolved move, play, right? Oh, um, mm-hmm. So we evolved to move, we evolved to learn movement through play. That was the, the fundamental thesis. So I started talking about all, all my ideas around natural movement with Ido. Um, not so much the first time that I met and trained with him, but the second time. I went to train with him in January of 2012. Uh, at a place called the monkey vault toronto which is a parkour gym mm-hmm. and um i was staying with the host the the guy who owned the gym and so we would spend you know the the mornings together having coffee and training and then do the seminar so i got a lot a lot of time to talk to Ido, and he basically told me that i needed to follow in his footsteps he was like your you know your ideas around natural movement are really important there it needs to get outside of the mm-hmm. scope of this gym so that was very encouraging, right? Um, and then, you know, Ido is still not super well known at that stage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were he still kind of stays under the, he still kind of stays a little under the radar. <laughs> he was he's pretty he's definitely the most well known guy in the movement community for yeah. a while there. Um, he's kind of backed off. I think that yeah. that level of fame was not mm-hmm. really happy for him. Yeah. But uh in any event, um so directly after that, so that was in January, I think. And then I think in February, we had Kel- we hosted Kelly Sturette for a movement and mobility seminar at um, at Parkour Visions. And he told me, like, hey, go on the road, teach seminars. Mm-hmm. So when I, you know, as it became clear that, like, the vision wasn't aligned at, mm-hmm. uh, at Parkour Visions, um, I had kind of received the 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 message from two of the top guys in the industry like hey this is the next step Get this on your out. journey 
So go do it. So boom, okay. off I went. Yeah. So now, I mean, now you do these retreats. I think you do at least you do like three a year or so, I believe. Yeah, we have three retreats. Yeah. And so we have retreats and workshops. So we we actually started with workshops, which were the two-day events that we travel and teach in other cities. And um, and then we had one retreat. We've had one retreat from the beginning. The first retreat uh, that we did was our July retreat, which is called Return to the Source. Mm-hmm. Um, and that one was originally conceived when I was still at Parkour Visions. Mm-hmm. And the first group of students mostly came from Parkour Visions. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, but we basically, I, I just wanted to take people out into nature to do parkour. That was, that was it. And I was like, well, we can camp in my dad's house and I can take people to, 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 to Qualcomm and Clayton Beach. So we can do a weekend where we'll do volunteer park in Seattle on the first day and then Qualcomm and Clayton Beach. Yeah. Um, and it was really well received and, mm-hmm. uh, I left Parkour Visions and started Evolve Move Play. I actually hadn't named Evolve Move Play, I think, yet when we had the first return to the source. But the ideas were all there and ready. And so I approached everyone who had signed up and said, hey, do you mind if we like expand the scope from a parkour nature event to this broader holistic natural mm-hmm. movement event? And everyone said yes. So that was our first teaching of it. So this is, that was, yeah, that was 2013. So this is our 10-year anniversary this year. Amazing. Yeah. You know, and oh. it's interesting. A lot of the a lot of the reviews that I've heard from and people who have gone through it have called it one of the most transformative things. And it's every time I hear that, I was like, okay, like what's like what do they mean by that? Like the depth of that. And I could see it in a bunch of different ways. But what is like who essentially has been coming to the retreats? Has it been a lot of people who have already explored kind of this type of movement or? Is it, you know, people who are brand new, like have really yeah. not done this at all? Like, is it kind of a mixed bag? It's a mixed bag and it's changed over the years. I mean, the first year was almost exclusively people who came from the parkour community. And then the second year we started to get uh, people from the parkour community, from Ido Portal's sort of student base and from the Wilderness Awareness School. Mm-hmm. And then that that's sort of continued, I guess, over the years. But then we've started to attract just more people who are generally people from maybe the fitness industry, mm-hmm. um, from different streams of the fitness industry. And then since my work uh, has started to really dive into the philosoph- philosophical aspect and be interacting with the work of Jordan Peterson and John Verveke, now we have a lot of people who come to me through those two mm-hmm. thinkers. And so they may not have any movement background at all and just be like, okay, they understand Don or Jordan started making me think about Mooney uh, mm-hmm. meaning in life. I saw something with you, Rafe, and I realized that I need to get my body moving in order to experience that. And I want to come out and do that. So we get a mix like, and we also have like a uh, really strong year over year retention. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have 24 students in this event coming up and I think half of them are returning students. Wow. Um, and and so that's, you know, so some of, some of those students now have been with us for, I think Melissa is going to be going, I think this is going to be her eighth uh, retreat that she's come to with us. Um, uh, and so, yeah, so it's, uh, you know, yeah. so we also have this like culture that's passed down. Yeah. Yeah. So the transformative aspect is, is interesting because I don't know that I set out to do that. Um mm-hmm. You know, I mostly nobody, just, nobody really, who accomplishes that usually does seek that out. It usually yeah. just comes. I, I I mostly just like I I 
get so much joy out of doing these practices and i wanted to create people who could do them with me that's basically the the main motivation is like there aren't that many people within the parkour community who really understand what nature offers um and there's not that many who can also do martial arts or who understand like maybe a wider movement culture perspective on movement right that there's little pieces from movement culture that are really nice to plug into your overall practice. Yeah. Um, so, so it was like, you know, basically I guess my, my, my motivation was just to create the type of training partners that I wanted to have around. (laughs) And so I I put on this event and I'm really excited about the jumps that we're doing and the swings through the trees and everything. And I'm asking, and I'm like, okay, well, what did you like about the event? Tell me about the event. Tell me what you got out of it. And everyone's like, Oh, it was the most life-changing event. And, um, and, and they're like the people, the connection I made with the people is the most important part. And I was like, oh, I don't care shit about people, <laughs> but but you get the same feedback or, or year over year, and you know people pay a lot of money to come train with you. You, you kind of yeah. want to make sure that they get the experience that they're that they want to have. And so we start leaning into this, and then interesting things just happen at their events that I'm not even don't have anything to do with really, right? Like uh, in 2016, we just happened to have three people who played music two of them come from the capoeira community so i had lyme disease mm. i actually had to leave the property and leave my students in charge a couple of my senior students um that night because i was so sick with lyme disease but the night that i left um israel and paul and Giancarlo led like a song circle and when i came back it was like the 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 bond that had been created between everyone who was there was so much more powerful and it's like okay well music now becomes something that we need to attend to as part of of what's happening at these events yeah and you know my my dad just happens to have a sauna on the property and it's like so we take a sauna every night and we sing in the sauna and you jump in the cold and it's like okay this is something powerful is happening here right you sit around a campfire and you're under the stars it's like okay that's powerful it turns out mm-hmm. and so over the years you just start like d- diving into that and then as i became really interested in just the question of meaning and how how a movement practice contributes to meaning in life then you start incorporating aspects of storytelling aspects of like really intentionally building a tribe and notice that something just like the food that we eat really makes a big difference like having local food like food that's grown in the valley that we're in and then having people contribute to making the food and be part of the process all of this brings people together in a, in a sense of tribe um so like over the years and then you know my student kyle who's one of our coaches now and then multiple other students melissa who i mentioned she is also from this uh wilderness awareness school tradition down in duval so uh, they've brought a ton of their culture, a ton of their skills to it. So we do fire making, we do all these, mm-hmm. uh, we do tracking, we do gathering, we do, you know, all this stuff and all these games come out of the nature tradition as well. And so essentially through all these kind of exposures, you come up, you end up with this ecology of practices, as John Verbeke had said, that you're not, didn't intentionally build as an ecology of practices. It evolved mm-hmm. through the meeting of the pe- type of people who wanted to do this thing. And then through applying the lens of theory that John, uh, Jordan Peterson offers and John Verbeke offers, start to recognize that essentially we're filling in the primary 
axes that give meaning to life. So uh, the the there's in the psychological literature they make a distinction between the meaning of life and the m- meaning in life, right? So m- the meaning of life is a religious question, right? Psychology doesn't try to answer that, but you can ask people, are they experiencing their life as meaningful? If you ask people that, then you can ask them, what makes your life feel meaningful? And essentially comes down to how connected people feel. A sense of connectedness appears to be the primary driver of meaning in life. So what we've discovered through these events is that fundamentally, we think there are five relationships that we can isolate out as giving a sense of meaning to life. So the first set of relationships is the relationships that are internal to you. So you can think of that as like how well your physical structure is coordinated, but it's also how well your emotion and physical structure and cognition are coordinated. It's how how much you have awareness of physically what it's like to be angry, to be hungry, to be lustful, and then how sophisticated you are in managing those and the conflicts between those. So there's the internal and structural somatic element of it. Then there is the relationship you have to the physical world. And that's, there's two kind of fundamental ways that we interact with the world as a space we move through Mm -hmm. and as a set of objects that we can manipulate. So again, exploratory locomotor and object oriented. And then there's the other living agents in the world, the other body minds, right? So how do we interact with the things? And so that's both, you know, the self-defense aspect that, uh, that George Hebert highlighted, but it's also dance. It's also shared work, right? It's also rituals, physical rituals. Mm-hmm. And then there is the relationship to something like the transcendent, this yeah. concept that we live within powers that are greater than us and that we are part of things that are far beyond our scope. So how do we put ourselves in a good relationship to that? How do we experience awe? How do we humble ourselves in the face of the great mystery of life or you know, God or whatever you want to call it? Um, so if you can create greater depth and sophistication across all of those relationships and greater sense of connectedness, that's what's going to give meaning to life. And the fundamental claim within Evolve Move Play is uh, the movement practice is actually the most powerful place to start because it's the piece that integrates every aspect of you. And we as a culture have gotten that completely wrong. We have gone and thought that we can isolate the mind and just sit in the mind, right? You know, Descartes, you know, is this huge seminal figure in helping us understand doubt and the power of doubt and how to justify our truth claims and our epistemology. Um, But he did this by this radical, radically disembodied way, right? Mm -hmm. He said, I think, therefore I am. Like, that's the only thing, right? And he separated the body as... You know, the world was viewed as um, as automatic, as clockwork, as mechanical in this Cartesian worldview. And the mind was held as separate, as a piece of the divine. And the only justification that we have that we are real is that we experience consciousness. But the physical world is viewed as, as not conscious, as just matter. Um, and so we, we've thought that we can 
become understand philosophy and become wise by just juggling propositions and we failed we've thought that we can understand ethics by arguing about it on paper and people who are ethics professors are not more ethical than other people and at every level we've failed to understand that um that the this propositional understanding of knowledge that comes just through the mind doesn't actually make us better problem solvers in the world mm-hmm. and so we need a radical re-engagement with the body and with the world the physical world and it's within that that i believe that we can actually redeem philosophy and maybe even religion um mm-hmm. because we have to reunite them with the gymnasia which is where it all started right exactly. i told you earlier right the gymnasia yeah. Plato's academy the academy um oh, one second yeah it's Plato's academy um yeah. The academy was named before Plato, right? The academy was a gymnasia. It was a place where people met to engage in physical practice. And if you read the dialogues of Plato, most of them take place in the gymnasia. That was where philosophy was born. It was born in the place that people were meeting for physical practice. Mm-hmm. But the story is even deeper. The gymnasia was built around a sacred grove of olive trees where the goddess Athena was worshipped. So in its origins, philosophy was united with uh, a deep respect for nature and a a sense that that was where one should go to um, connect with the transcendent. And the idea that that was somehow connected deeply to processes of communal engagement with physical training with embodied training that grew us into the type of people who could you know at that point trust each other to stand in a shield wall mm-hmm. um and and that's where that's where you know our whole philosophical system originates yeah. uh so i believe that we cannot sort of embody the sage without returning to that full understanding of engagement with the natural world and with our body and with community Mm -hmm. yeah right that was that was such a beautiful curation of everything in there um i don't even want to step on that and add to it that was just absolutely perfect in there you know i named you know i named this podcast the strength connection because i've learned through so much personal experience as well as being a coach that it's it's the body, but it's the mind and the spirit. Everything's connected together. We can't separate these practices. It's like, it's working these all together in one thing. It's not one is more important than the other one. They all have, you know, part of the recipe to make this, what we're trying to do is be happy, be fulfilled and be as strong as we can in our lives. And though, you know, what you just said there from not just the historical point, but the word that you kept, you know, using there was reconnection. And that was one of my favorite things of seeing the work that you have is that there's a theme about reconnecting to what makes you human again. And that's like, and I think it's, for some reason, we get diluted into a lot of different distractions that pull us away from the source. And I've, I've quoted this you know, before from a good friend, Sifu Singh, who talked about flow state and where he said, flow is natural. We just get in, the, in our own way. Mm-hmm. And it's the, it's a very similar approach of, of what you've done with evolve, move, play of 
just bringing everybody and returning back to the source. And from there, you're going to get what you need. It might be more physical. It might be more mental. It might be more spiritual. It might be a combination of all of them, but it's going to give you what you need in order to, you know, create where you need fulfillment most in your life. So I absolutely love all the work that you've done. I'm so excited to see the evolution of this and see where it continues to go down the line in the future for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, if people want to connect with you more, check out more of what you're doing, um, see the retreats, what's the best place that we can direct them? Websites evolvementplay.com. Our treats are sold out for this year. Um, Folks can email us at support at evolvementplay.com to get on a wait list for next year. I think there's a wait list function on the website actually, Mm -hmm. but yeah, you can get on the wait list for next year. Mm-hmm. Um, those are, it's getting pretty competitive to get into the retreats. So people might want to, yeah. to get in on that. Um, we have some workshops available. We have a couple more available in Asheville and in, um, San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're likely to open some new ones as well. Uh, we're looking at Los Angeles, Austin, Toronto, um, just kind of waiting on a few things to, uh, to, to nail those down. But if folks are interested um, and want to see us in those cities or some other cities, uh, you know, supported of all new play to let us know. And then we also have uh, a fairly extended group of online course resources that people can find on the website and check that out. Uh, I'm on Instagram. Mm-hmm. That's where a lot of our uh, content is kind of hitting right now and YouTube, YouTube and Instagram. And then I dabble on Twitter and Facebook, but uh that's more, more. And you, and you have a podcast as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. probably something I should mention. Um, yeah. I have over a hundred episodes. We've yeah. had Frank Francis and Kelly Starrett and John Verveke and um, Clifton Harsky. Yeah. yeah. Cliff Harsky. That was yeah. a great one. Um, so lots of really amazing guests, Callum and uh, Toby, Callum uh, Powell and Toby Seeger from Storer, Sebastian Foucault, one of the founders of Parkour. Um, yeah, it's an amazing podcast, uh, if I say so myself. And um, uh, we are currently on hiatus with recording new podcast episodes, but there's a huge backlog and we'll be back in the fall uh, with new episodes of the podcast. So that's on YouTube. It's on Spotify. It's on Apple Podcasts. It's on Stitcher, I think. So wherever you like to uh, listen to podcasts, you can probably find it. They've all moved play. Yeah, and we'll throw that in the link here. Rafe, thanks so much for taking the time. Listeners, thank you so much. I'll catch you guys on the next one. Peace. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you found some great value here. And if you like this episode, please drop a comment and leave us a five-star rating and review. It does more to build the show than you can imagine. And do not forget to check out and join the Strength Connection Facebook group. In this group, I share the biggest takeaways and lessons from these amazing conversations, as well as training and strength tips for pursuing mastery and fulfillment in life. This group is filled with individuals looking to take full control over their strength, and it's the perfect space to explore new ideas and to share your journey. And you'll also get exclusive access to the Strength Connection Mastery Seminars. It's a deep dive into the physical, mental, and spiritual training that you can begin using immediately. So do not wait. Go now. Seriously, go. I much love to you. Thank you so much, and I'll catch you on the next one.